Before we begin the message from the Gospel text, it is important to remember that this is Memorial Day weekend, a day set aside in our nation's calendar to remember all those who have died in its defense and in the defense and of bringing freedom to others, men and women who willingly gave up their lives that others live, men and women who mirrored the mission of Christ. Jesus willingly gave up his life so that all those who trust in him might live. Celebrate their sacrifice in giving them honor, and we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus, recognizing his victory over death and the grave. Pray, praying full and final victory will soon come when pain and death will be no more, when what was started on Easter becomes the fullness of its resident promise. Now, happy Easter. We are seventh Sunday of Easter. Today is also the alternate celebration of the Ascension. The actual day of Ascension, 40 days after Easter, was Thursday. That is when the Ascension is primarily celebrated. And this morning, we move to the 14th chapter of the Gospel according to John, beginning in the first verse. We have an interesting Gospel setting in comparison to the season of Easter, our current church season, because this passage is a scene in which Jesus is praying both for himself and for the disciples prior to his arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. His prayer, however, is in anticipation of all these events. Recognizing that effect allows us to see in Jesus' prayer for his followers, his prayer for us prior to his arrest, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. An understanding of what Jesus, God the Son, wants for us and wants from us as he returns to God the Father. To gain a bit of context, in the verses immediately prior to our gospel reading, Jesus explains to the disciples that they will face tribulation in the world. It is at that point that Jesus then lifts his eyes towards heaven and is allowed to God the Father. The great theologian Augustine tells us that Jesus made it his practice to pray aloud, not only to engage in prayer, Jesus could have prayed in silence, but also to set the example and thereby teach the disciples, his followers, to us to be a people of prayer, most especially in times of tribulation. Jesus opens his prayer stating that the hour has come. What hour? The hour the time of his sacrifice. Do not be confused by the term. He is not speaking of an event one hour in duration. No, rather, Jesus is speaking of the hour which initiates all those. For any fellow historians out there listening, this is the H hour which initiated D-Day, which culminated in what Eisenhower referred to as the Korean Europe, the final 11 months of the fighting of the Second World War in Europe, victory to the allies. Jesus here announces his own H-hour, the initiation of the series of events that will prove him victorious over death and the grave, and that victory to his allies, the disciples, his followers, to us. Jesus says to God the Father, the hour has come. Then he frames everything else that is to follow. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. There is an important lesson here. When we seek something from God, 
and I invite you to do a quick mental inventory of your current prayer request list. When we seek something from God, what is our intention for that desire? Jesus, God the Son, asks to be glorified so that God the Father is glorified in him. And in the crucifixion of Jesus, what happened? The sky went black, the sun, the moon, and the stars withheld their light at the death of Jesus, God the Son. The earth shook, rocks split, tombs opened, and the dead within them restored to life. The curtain separating the people from the Holy of Holies in the temple, separating the people from the immediate presence of God, that curtain was torn in two, marking the fact that through Jesus the Son, we now have direct access to God the Father. This is why in the celebration of the Eucharist, the paten and chalice upon and in which are the bread and wine that become the very body and blood of Christ are veiled at the start. The veil being removed during the liturgy reminds us that the curtain of separation was destroyed in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross and we now are in perfect union with God the Father through Jesus his Son. And the Roman centurion, the man who a few minutes later would plunge his spear through the side of Jesus to prove that he was, in fact, dead, confesses his own newfound belief. Truly, this was the Son of God. Jesus, God the Son, announced his hour and asked that in it he be glorified so that God the Father is glorified. And from the description of the course of events, we know that is exactly what happened. The next important petition from Jesus is that eternal life comes from the one true God. When Jesus says this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. There are some people out there who will try to assert from this phrase that God the Father is God, but Jesus, God the Son, is not God, claiming that Jesus himself says God the Father is the one true God. There are many faults with this argument that we do not have time to address right now. So I'll only point out a couple examples. Jesus in multiple locations in the gospel text asserts his absolute unity with God the Father. One example is when he tells the disciples that because they have seen him, they have seen the Father. The next trouble with the Jesus deniers is the reality that it is in this very passage of scripture we have Jesus making the assertion that he and the Father are one. We'll get to that in a moment. So when taken in context and the light of the entire gospel testimony, what we understand from this text is Jesus is proclaiming that God the Father in the unity with God the Son and the soon to be revealed God the Holy Spirit is the one true God and all other beings worshipped as if they are gods by different people in different places are in fact false gods and cannot save. Jesus then explains how he has taught us the truth of God, that we, believing his truth, are his, and by being his, we are God the Father's, saying, all mine are yours, and all yours are mine. It is here Jesus brings us into and makes us part of what was said at the start of this, his high priestly prayer. He says here, I am glorified in them. In the beginning of our passage, 
Jesus asked to be glorified by God the Father to bring glory to God the Father, which we saw did indeed happen. And now, here in this portion, Jesus says that he is glorified in his disciples, his followers, in us. This gives us an implied reciprocity. We glorify Jesus. God the Father glorifies Jesus. Jesus glorifies God the Father, and we glorify God the Father. And in this connection, Jesus says, all of these things, keep them in your name. The particular language Jesus uses here means for God the Father to keep us in our loyalty, in our faithfulness. Keep us in our loyalty and our faithfulness to him and the truth of him revealed to us by Jesus. And in that faithfulness, we too share in the glory of God. Now in the final petition of the prayer, we will discuss this morning Jesus moves from that portion. Jesus, God the Son, says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. That they may be one, even as we are one. The Central Intelligence Agency, also known as the CIA, fact on world population, breaks down world's all of the world's Christians into four primary categories, Roman Catholics, Protestants, Orthodox, and Anglicans. I bet you didn't know that the CIA keeps detailed data analysis of the world's religious position, but it does. These four meta-categories are then each broken down into multiple subdivisions and sub-subdivisions. For example, among Catholics, there are Roman Catholics that we all are aware of, and the many other Catholic bodies, such as the various old Catholics, the different national Catholics, such as Polish national Catholics, Mexican national Catholics, and many others. At the other end of the Christian spectrum are Baptists, which are then subdivided into Southern, Northern, American, Independent, Landmark, etc., etc. And each of the major denominations in between can be shown to have splintered in multiple versions of itself. When all of these subdivisions and sub-subdivisions are counted, it is estimated that Christianity has splintered and schismed into 30,000 or more different representations of what Jesus desired to be one. It is unlikely that the tears in the fabric of the church will be mended by us any time soon. Sadly, it seems that they will remain until the return of Jesus, who brings fullness of the Easter resurrection promise of the perfected kingdom of God. But we can do something about it, however. We can do something that will move all Christians in the right direction. Jesus has called for us to be, and prayed for us to be, monokos. A Latin word that's derived from the root mono, meaning alone or individual, as a monorail train runs on a singular track, for example, and the suffix for plurality. In other words, individuals united together. No matter the differences between Christians, let us all be a people with one mind, united in our devotion to and desire for the glory of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And with God glorified in us, may we be glorified in him. Happy Easter. Amen.